Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're talking about love is the secret fuel to powering, enduring partnerships. My first guest is Dr. Stan Tatkin, and this episode originally aired in February of 2016. Let's have a listen. Welcome, Dr. Tatkin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lisa. Nice to meet you. Oh, it's lovely to have you on the show. This is something that comes up. I do a lot of work in addiction and trauma recovery, and uh, men and women are always asking me about how to create relationships, how to more consciously couple after addiction, after divorce, after death, trauma, loss, etc. And I think you have the answers, or at least some of them. Some, yes. Hopefully. Let, let's, well, let's talk about attachment and what a vital role this plays in how we connect and couple. Well, attachment refers to a basic human need that we discovered in the 50s, along with primate, primates are the same way, is our need to connect, to bond with at least one other person and to feel safe and secure in that relationship. So attachment theory looks at the, the primary relationships in childhood um, and, uh, and considers whether those relationships allow the child, the baby, the infant, the uh, uh, adolescent, and so on, to, to feel fully safe and secure in the relationship. In other words, not afraid of being abandoned, not afraid of being taken over in some way. Sorry about that. So those sounds. That's the um, sounds of life. It's no problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and, and so let's say we have a secure situation in childhood that goes throughout the lifespan of, uh, or at least the early developmental stages of childhood. That is a relationship uh, with at least one parent caregiver where the caregiver is present, 
continuously or mostly continuously present, interested, curious, wants to find the baby, has the resources to do this again and again and again, because we find that uh, that uh, attunement between individuals um, is lost and found over and over again. So we have a relationship that doesn't uh, reward or punish the child for clinging um, folding in or for separating. And that's the essence of what a secure relationship is. And then you have insecure, anything other than that, where the relationship in the family culture didn't actually come first. What came first were self-needs of the parents, performance, uh, you know, appearances, um, or the need of, of a parent to have a child take care of them for some reason. Those are insecure models or cultures of attachment. And then people, if they're not course corrected through healing relationships as they move forward in life, they're going to repeat that same kind of situation in their adult romantic relationship. And what you say is so profoundly true. And I, I think it's important to share with our listeners that even though many of us have not necessarily had very um, healthy attachments in our early lives, I mean, when you look at the prevalence of divorce and look at the prevalence of what was going on culturally, let's say in the 60s and 70s, and how that impacted the way parents parented. Yes. You have a generation that may have some compromised attachment issues. Absolutely. And, and this, I, I just want people to understand this is not pathology. This is nature. We're, we're dealing with, with a culture, a family culture that gets handed down. And it's simply about fairness, justice, and sensitivity as a founding principle of the, of the, of the culture. So if you and I put relationship first, that, um, that comes, um, over everything else. So I can't stand it if you and I are not in good order. I have to repair with you. I have to do something to make it right because I can only breathe easily when you and I are good. Uh, okay. And because my relationship with you is the most important thing, not whether you are dressing the way I want you to dress, not because I'm right about this particular matter, but because I want the fidelity of the relationship to be good because if it is not, then I am not. In other words, yeah. The, the word fidelity, I think, is such a strong word here and has such yeah. meatiness in what we're talking about because that the sense of trust, believing in you, say, you know, you and I are attached and we're connected, right. believing that you're going to show up, that you are going to be there, that you are going to be consistent yes. and able to be trusted, then enables me to go out in the world and form those like-minded or like-emotioned relationships with others. Yes. Not only that, but people, and we focus on what's called a secure functioning relationship, which is independent um, uh, you know, t in terms of whether people in the relationship are actually secure or not. Um, secure functioning is a, a decision, an idea that two people uh, realize that has to do with collaboration and mutuality, that you and I understand that beyond the feelings of attraction we have for each other or common interests, we have greater interests in, in, in common, and that has to do with the purpose of our relationship. Why are we together? What's the point of us? What do we do for each other that we couldn't hire somebody else to do? And if, it's, if, if our answer isn't future thinking about, well, we 
we agree on principles such as we tell each other everything because we choose to. We um, are the go-to people because we must be. We protect each other for, in public and private because that protects both of us. We're in the foxhole together and the war is outside of us, not inside the foxhole. If we have principles that, that protect both of us regardless of our personalities, that is what we call secure functioning. And that's the fidelity I'm talking about, fidelity to the, our agreements. These are what, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. I, I love this. It makes, per, it makes perfect sense. And the good news, regardless of where we have come from, we can choose to learn these, these skills. This is something yes. that's a learned behavior. Yes, it is. And we see people from all walks of life doing it. We have uh, people in, in the street that are street people who have mental illness, and they're able to do it. Um, I have plenty of patients who have a variety of conditions, and they're able to do it. So this is not, uh, this is available to everybody who understands um, uh, what it means to be secure functioning. Um, there are several myths that you are debunking in your latest book, Wired for Dating, and I would love for you to share some of these myths because I'm I'm reading the list, and the, the first one that I see here is love is all you need to make a relationship succeed, and it's making me smile and wince at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, love is love has to be broken down in terms of what the meaning is to uh, the individual. It's like religion. Everybody comes to the table with their own meaning, their own idea. So that's one thing. But if we look on a biological or psychobiological level, love has, um, has different uh, chemical parts to it that create a feeling of love, such as you and I meet at a party and we're really excited and we can't get enough of each other. That's what we call exciting love. And that is more like an addictive love, which isn't to say it's bad. It's a necessary condition to jettison into another stage of relationship. But it ought to be something that we can uh, generate again and again throughout our relationship lifetime. So there's, uh, there's that kind of love. There's quiet love, which is, uh, you know, um, what uh, Donald Winn Winnicott, a famous uh, physician who studied mother infant pairs, uh, called you know, going on being. It's the quiet but alert state of you and I just being together without having to use excitement. We're relaxed and we're calm and we're safe. So all different kinds of love, but to be sure, the kind of love that most people are talking about um, is not going to hold a relationship together. Uh, uh, it will hold blood relationships, perhaps stronger, but not a marriage situation. Because what, what brings about feelings of love is what people do for each other um, that is above and beyond the pale of what other people would do. That invokes a feeling of love, a feeling of gratitude, a feeling of wanting to give back. So, um, this is not to say that love relationships are work, but love relationships have to operate by certain rules or they will fail. And love, love will be snuffed out by feelings of threat, uh, feelings of, of regret, feelings of resentment. That's for the unskilled partnership. That's what they will do if they don't understand. Ooh, I love those words that you just used, the, the unskilled partnership. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, I would love for you to identify some of the hallmarks of skilled relationship or skilled partnership. Let's head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. 
we know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Stan Tatkin that originally aired in February of 2016. What are the hallmarks of positive partnering? Well, one is that you and I realize we're, we are in each other's care. We are no longer in our own care specifically or, you know, uh, 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 we are, um, I'm in your care, you are in my care. I am an expert on you. I know you better than I know myself. I know I'm better at you than I am at my work. So, <laughs> I, you know, I am the Lisa whisperer. I know, things, I know things that, Lisa, that nobody else could know about you, which makes me invaluable because I can do things that nobody else can do. So, but you can do things with me that nobody else knows about. You know how to, uh, how to lift my mood, how to calm me, how to know whether I've been hit by something that is my kryptonite and makes me fall. You know exactly what to do. Um, we're golden. No, actually platinum for each other because we actually are interested in paying attention to one another and knowing each other like we have each other's owner's manual. That's the degree we're supposed to do this. Uh, and, and we pay attention to the slightest cues or clues of distress and we take care of that promptly without delay, without complaint. The word platinum that you use, um, I, it, it, it particularly resonates with me when we talk about, you know, the notion of soulmates. And so often you hear people say, I'm looking for my soulmate. And this, in fact, is one of the myths that you debunk in your book. Yes. Talk a little bit about that, because I, I mean, I think you describe it very well, but this is a little bit different than soulmate, which is a bit ephemeral. 
Um, the soulmate to a lot of people uh, comes, uh, again, like love people, you have to ask what they mean, what they actually mean, because the word can mean a lot of different things. But often what people mean is that they're looking for some aspect of themselves, um, a perfect self uh, that they're trying to find that will fit them perfectly. And there is actually no such person because every person on the planet is annoying. Every person on the planet is difficult. There is no low maintenance person up close, at least not for very long. And so people fall in love with their own image ideas of who they think they want. But if you only had one soulmate, boy, that's dismal. I mean, there's no chance I will ever find somebody in the billions of people on the planet. So um, this is an idea that, uh, that stems from um, not having anybody in front of you. So my ideal is my soulmate. But how do you become my soulmate? Well, we pair bond by recognition only. You and I would never last more than six months if we didn't recognize each other, if we didn't find each other in some way very familiar and even familial. And so that's where we recognize each other, and it feels like you're my soulmate. But it goes beyond that. How... How good of a team are we at regulating each other's nervous system states? How good are we at calming distress between the two of us? How good are we at creating excitement between the two of us? Um, these are uh, ideas that come from a two-person system in real time operating in a sensitive, um, just, and fair fashion. It has to be good for me good for you. This is a full collaboration. We are the roof of the house, top of the food chain. We are the bosses. Any other idea is going to, there's going to be a problem with that. And you won't feel like a soulmate. You'll feel like you're with the devil. <laughs> oh. Let's talk for a moment about the, the dating, because so often you hear people who are of a certain age, maybe in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s and beyond that are coming into singlehood yes. again. Yes. And they talk about, oh, my God, dating is for the young, or I, couldn't, I, can't, I can't go out there, or I'm scared. I'll, ne I'll never find anybody. That's another big one. I'll never yes. hook up again. I'll never connect. Well, you know, I can understand this. I mean, it's not pleasant being single unless you're someone who loves being single. Then it's great. But if you are tired of this, you really want a partner, it's not easy. I, I doubt it's ever really been that easy. You could say in some ways it's harder today because there are there's more um, dating addiction out there with uh, these apps that we have on our phones. It's very easy to play the, you know, sort of the Vegas game of dating. Um, but it's not the same as pair bonding. I think what people are really trying to say is they want to pair bond again. Uh, dating sounds like a whole other thing, right? But really, we're looking for a, a partner that we can live with that can be home for us, where we can actually exist together and and take fears off the table and free resources for one another. So think of the person I find is not just exciting. They have to be someone that I want to be home with, home being the two of us, home being the relationship. And what we're trying to do here is not simply talk about tools of dating. We want people to get the big idea because it's not simply dating. It is the relationship. I'm not thinking about a person. I'm thinking about the relationship I want. And this is where people are making mistakes. Um, I want 
the relationship to be in this fashion, fair, just, sensitive. We tell each other everything. We are the go-to people. We're the first to know. Um, uh, we protect each other in public and private. We re- protect our resources. All these things, this is what I want. And then I, I look uh, for others who are willing to do that. If they're not willing to do that, game over. But we have so many people not thinking ahead about the relationship. They think about a person, and mm. that becomes a mistake. Or an ideal. You know, an ideal, which is a person still. Yes. And, and, and the reality of it is we're all flawed. We, we all come to the table with wounds, yes. um, vulnerabilities. And the, you so eloquently said, you know, the idea is to take fear off the table. Yes. You and I take um, certain fears off the table because we can, such as we agree never, ever to threaten the relationship itself. We don't do this because we know it's self-harming. So, uh, uh, so we don't do that, and that takes a tremendous burden off of most relationships. The fear of this relationship not lasting tomorrow can draw so many resources that we cannot concentrate, we cannot do our work, we can't be creative, we can't be self-expressive, and we're not as nice. So you and I are going to do things for each other that nobody else wants to do because they don't care. We're never going to threaten each other. I'm going to make you feel like a million bucks because if I don't, you will underperform. If I'm not the greatest thing since sliced turkey to you, then I will underperform for you. So we do these things because we can, and the alternative is bad. The words um, showing up, popping into my mind, my eyes are closed and I'm listening to what you're saying. And it it, it really is an agreement that we are going to show up for one another. Yes, which includes standing up to one another. Yeah. So so here's a common thing where I, you know, I, uh, we bought and paid for each other. We've taken each other off the market. We are now, uh, we've taken each other uh, as each other's pain in the ass, like we should. Uh, we're, we, we understand we're burdens for one another, right? But now I start to complain that you scare me, and I don't tell you the truth because you scare me. Well, in my world, the way we work with couples, um, uh, that is a problem. Uh, I'm supposed to know how to handle you. I'm not supposed to be afraid of you. That's my problem. And it creates a problem for you because if I find you scary, then it makes you someone to be feared. You don't want that. So the emphasis here is I need to know how to work you. I picked you for good reasons. Now the problem is can I handle you? And since we're picking by recognition, the you I may not be able to handle is the person like my dad who I still can't handle because there are aspects of you, because I recognize you, that are like other difficult people I still can't handle. So my task is to learn how to deal with you. Um, It's not fair, right, for us to pick each other and then to claim, well, I don't know how you work and um, I don't care about paying attention to how you work and this is what you mostly have, right? It's my job to to figure you out. And that does get very exhausting and it it, it breeds uh, fatigue. It can breed contempt. I mean, you mean to, to not do that, you mean to, to, to not do that. Yes. yes. Yeah. And then you're in the danger zone. Right. Right. Because we are supposed, you and I are supposed to be afraid of nothing when it comes to each other. That's the way it has to be afraid of nothing. We avoid nothing. 
Um, the, the danger, if there is any danger, is outside of us, not inside this couple bubble, this, this terrarium that we create and that we protect. Um, so it's, this is an attitude, this is a way of thinking that I think is hard f- in our culture for people to get because we have too many messages that, that are conflicting. Especially when it comes to, you know, the, the, the me generation taking yeah. care of self, being whole as self before you can engage with another. And these are some of the cliches that the book I, I, goes into. But I want to talk about the psychobiological approach to couples therapy path, sure, which sure. you, um, you've partnered with your wife. Yes. You offer, um, workshops. You do trainings for, uh, uh, counselors, social right. workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, continuing education. You also train couples as well. Yes, we do. Uh, so I have my practice. My wife and I do couples retreats around the world. But, um, but we've set up a, a training institute. I train therapists around the world how to do this approach um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a fun way of working, but it has a lot of complexity to it because we're dealing with uh, with neuroscience, how the brain develops, we're dealing with uh, with infant development and attachment, and we're dealing also with what we call arousal regulation, and that is uh, the fast-acting process of the nervous system uh, where people react to each other faster than uh, than thought, right? Huh. Um, and and this is a, a phenomena that's that's that is common to the human animal. Um, and so we're, we're seeking to understand it better and better. We're going to take a quick pause. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glasses half empty or half full, The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite. Focusing on love is the secret fuel to powering, enduring partnerships. My next guest is Linda Carroll, and this episode originally aired in February of 2015. Let's have a listen. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for being with us. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you. What a great introduction. Likewise. Wasn't it about love? I mean, what is it about except learning how to love? That's what I think at least. Me too. I think that that's everything. And once we figure that out, 
And mostly I think it starts with ourselves and that reflection in the mirror, and then we can go global with it. Yes, but it's learning how to because it's, it's you know, when I we, we fall in love, it takes no energy or work or intelligence or self-knowledge. We just fall. I did it at 11. You don't have to have any skill to be able to do it. But how to keep loving really is the challenge for all of us is learning how to love. And I think that's why Rilke said it takes a lifetime to learn how to do it because it's a very slippery slope at times. And yet we're so lucky to live in this time where we really have roadmaps that can help us get back off the slippery slope onto the path of loving. And those roadmaps are are what you share in your program and what I've been studying all my life because I wanted it to be easier. And I I found that without a roadmap, it wasn't easy at all. It's still not easy, but at least I know something about it. You know a lot about it. And your latest book, Love Cycles, goes in depth about this cycle of falling uh, building, maintaining, and re-experiencing love. What does the phrase love cycle mean to you? It means that, well, I'll tell you, I was, I was on a plane and I read, the, uh, going to Rancho La Puerta to talk about love many years ago, and there was a, like a Dear Abby column. The person said, I have this fabulous partner. He's a great father. He's so wonderful to me, but I'm not in love with him anymore. What should I do? And the person was responding said, well, you should get a lawyer and leave. And I was so distressed by that, that I, and, and I started to talk, and sometimes that's just what happens to me. I was giving my talk at, at the ranch, and um, it just kind of came out of me, and I said, you know, love is a feeling, and relationships are a skill set, and the feeling of love cycles over and over again, sometimes throughout a day. We don't always, like a frozen photograph, we don't always stand looking at our beloved with our heart open. Sometimes we can't get in touch with the feeling. And, you know, long relationships have some cold winters. Everything goes in cycles. Our, our, the seasons, our careers, our, the development of, of who we are and what we care about. Cycles are a part of our world, the waves of the ocean. And so why wouldn't relationships also go in cycles, and yet we're so geared to that first cycle, the merge, or that cycle of despair, which I call the, the, um, the, the third cycle of relationship. What, what ha- happens is that we think that those cycles are the whole thing. We are enchanted, and we think that's love, and we are disenchanted, and we think that love is over. But they're all part of one cycle. And I think coming to understand that has certainly helped myself and many readers to see what is normal in the journey of love. I think you share something extremely important. And uh, many of our listeners, and myself included, have been in a very, very long-term committed relationship. And I noticed that while my love of my partner doesn't really dampen it definitely like the love lights wax and wane and i think it's really important to understand that that's common and normal it's common and normal it doesn't mean something's wrong and it also doesn't mean to shut down our loving behavior um that that when we're you know what 
couples spend a lot of time in reaction to each other. So one is in a place where they're more contracted. That's another cycle is expansion and, and contraction. And two people aren't going to be expanded with their hearts open, you know, gazing at each other day after day. We have life comes in, stress comes in. We have all my husband has, has the flu right now, and he's sort of a bear, really. He's not much fun to be around. And, and I want to say my heart's full of of, of complete compassion, but I'm kind of annoyed. He's grumbling around the house, you know, pushing away, looking for things. But I can, I'm continuing to be kind to him because I know he's not feeling well. And that we have, that's part of, that's part of cycles of life, isn't it? You know, some days we just don't feel well. Some days we get the flu. And I think that we have this idea that, so if you were to say, am I madly in love with him today? No, not at all. He's annoying me. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with what my heart is, the depth of me, experiences for him. Um, and so, you know, this if I'm looking, if I'm thinking about those love songs and the feelings of enchantment, that's I'm going to say, well, I, I'm not in love. So it's a complicated phrase, even the phrase of being in love is complicated and makes lots of trouble because we can't be in a state at every moment. That's like saying being in enlightenment. Yes. You need those other states of being unenlightened or being goofy and and unconscious to really highlight when we do come to those enlightened moments as the same with those loving moments. You know, that I, I, I don't think we can be there all the time. But yet maybe there's another way of looking at this concept of love or this action of love. There is the romantic love that we think about when we think about our partners um, and people we're in relationship with. But when we talk about the deeper soul of love, you know, that unconditional positive regard for another person simply because they're alive. Right. Um, and, and I, th- you know, I think, and I don't feel that all the time either, you know, but I'll tell you something. Every day for 30 years, my husband has made me a latte. I mean, just about, just about every single day. You know, he makes that latte when we're, our hearts open to each other. He makes it if we're angry at each other. He makes it if we're just in different worlds and aren't paying attention to each other. That latte comes, and I think that there's a truth in that that is a bigger truth, which is that love is an action. It's a skill set. It doesn't depend on what you feel. It depends on what your commitment is. And I think it's kind of like playing the violin. Not everyone who plays the violin, I probably nobody who plays the violin, gets up and practices every day with a song in their heart. You know, there's days they just couldn't be bothered. But you, it's like, or, or going to the gym, you just do the action. And what happens is that those valleys, you come out of them and you've got more skill. If you just wait till you feel like playing the violin, there's not going to be any great violinists around. And I think that's true with a loving relationship. We act loving, and I'm not talking about being phony, but we, have, we, we do loving behavior and kind behavior as a practice, even when the feelings aren't there, because we have the belief in it. And that's what my book is about. That's what my teaching is about. And I really believe it, because it's worked for me. 
You know, I think what you just said really hits the nail on the head that it is really a, it is a practice. It is about, you know, exercising those muscles of, uh, love, empathy, compassion, understanding, patience, um, the tall, the, the tolerance for, um, life when it is not so perfect and it's not so romantic and the sirens are not singing, you know? <laughs> yes. That's also yes. life. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's the practice. Um, I, so that's yes. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I cut you off. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I didn't even know you did. I think so. Love is a practice. It's a practice that we do, and I'm not talking about squishy fake love. I'm talking about the kindness of it. You know that we do, and we forgive ourselves when we don't, because we're not going to do that all the time either. But there, it really helps to know stages and to understand the cycles of love. The cycles of love involve not only what we are feeling, but it also involves our sexuality. You know, sex goes through cycles too. I know we're not going to talk about that, but we think that somehow the that culturally, that if we're not having incredibly, you know, hot, wonderful, amazing, over-the-moon sex like we did in the third month, that there's something wrong with the relationship. And again, that's a practice. You can bring that back, but it doesn't come naturally. It's not just falling into. It requires something from us to make happen. You know, I really agree with you on this, especially when you've been together with somebody for a long period of time. We're going to go to a break in a second, but I will just make one observation that that latte every day for 30 years, that's foreplay in my book. You know, like your husband, he's got a big scorecard. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's a love song and it's foreplay. That's that's right, because what it does is it builds goodwill and trust. And, you know, everybody has trouble. Everybody argues. Everybody, every, we're all impossible at some level. And, and the thing that happens is that the goodwill is what brings us back into heart contact with each other again and again. And in spite of all of the things that are not perfect and don't work. We're going to need to take that break, but we will be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. 
Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. Let's rejoin my conversation with Linda Carroll that originally aired in February of 2015. Linda, prior to the break, we were talking about your husband who makes you these lattes every day for 30 years. And I think that's really delicious and really keeps that sense of romance alive. And in my book, it's, it is foreplay, as I mentioned. But there's something that we all love about the early phases of our romance as the infatuation stays, uh, stages when we're actually a little loopy. What is that? Well, it's dopamine. You know, you know, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, had a son named Cupid. All of our stories that go back so far talk about love potion hit with a magic arrow. What we know now is that that magic arrow actually does have a potion in it. It is measurable. It's measurable in laboratories. It's measurable on PET scans. The brains of people who fall in love are different in that romantic stage than people who are not. And in the long-term love, they're not different. But the, in the beginning, we have all of that dopamine, oxytocin, a, a, a substance called norepinephrine. And what happens is, and they all reduce serotonin, which makes us have kind of a similar reaction of um, obsessive-compulsive disorder. When you don't have enough serotonin, you have <laughs> obsessive-compulsive disorder. And isn't that true? Who hasn't called somebody and hung up when they heard their voice or driven by someone's house and felt this hit? And we want to be under that spell, just like in history, story after opera, after poem, talks about the spell of love. There is such an incredible feeling. It's the best diet there is. We don't need to eat or sleep. And we really feel like we've cracked a code. Now, here's what I think. I think that there is there are two things about that. One is it is not a sign that we should be with that person. In fact, for some of us, when we feel that feeling, we should run so fast the other way because we're programmed to fall in love with people that are not going to be good for us. That's part one, is that it's a sign that something's happening. It may be a sign to have a great time, to enjoy this person. It's not a sign to run off with them and start a life. We need a lot more information about who they are before we do that. But it's a sign that something has happened. There's something here to pay attention to, and it's very powerful. The second thing about it that I think is really, really important about um, that that state of love is it shows us the possibility and I and it shows us not only the possibility of the other person because there's something about the chemistry that makes us see the best of that person and by the way it also causes us to ignore the worst of them so it is not necessarily what we see is is the best but we may not pay attention to the fact that they've had 18 lovers before us who they've dumped unexpectedly um, the other but the other thing that it does is it causes us to be our best. I'm never more generous or accepting or less critical than when I'm under the spell of, the, of that romantic drug. And so there's something in that to pay attention to, which is how can I get back some of those feelings? And one of the things I do when I work, I work with couples, I'm a coach, I work all over the United States with couples, and I have a practice, and I have, we go, we really take apart those early times. What did they do? We laughed together. We were, gave each other spontaneous presents. We brought lattes. We forgave. We, you know, we said it doesn't really matter where you want to eat tonight. 
and I say, okay, can you start to act that way even though you don't feel the feelings? What would happen if you respond, if you just allowed yourself to imagine behaving in that way? What would happen? And you know what happens. There was a great, uh, a great story in Modern Love a couple of weeks ago in the Times about the experiments about how when we are interested in the other person, when we are caring towards them, people fall in love with each other. Those have been experiments that have done at universities everywhere. Put people in a room eye to eye and have them share and, and disclose in a deep way and listen. They fall in love. And what did we do in the beginning? We listened. We thought the other person was so fabulous and fascinating. We wanted to hear their story. We didn't roll our eyes and say, oh, not that story again. But we said, okay, tell me about your day. I really want to hear. Can we mirror some of those behaviors? If we can do that, some of those feelings can come back again. And then that leads to a whole new kind of relationship. So that there is really, so that's, that's, I, I could talk about the falling in love part forever, but those are two things I think, you know, simulate the behavior and don't confuse the feelings for um, relationship compatibility. You got to know your own I, history I, and what's going to, what's going to get your attention. And sometimes it's the biggest narcissist in the room. So uh, that is not necessarily a sign to go towards. <laughs> Oh boy, yes, and we've got a show coming up about narcissism and, and and psychopathology, so we're going to leave that for another episode. But I do think what you said is really important, and I know that um, my guy, who I've been with for many, many years, and you know, you get kind of into a routine, and I wouldn't say a rut, but you get into the routine and the flow of seeing that person in through one colored lens and I, I I find that when I see him out in the world talking about what he loves he's an architect and seeing him engage with his clients I end up having moments of falling in love with him again because I yes. see him differently he's not yes, just my guy yes. that's so good yes that's right that when we see our partner being competent that there's something about that that's very exciting isn't it I, I think that that is absolutely true, and we see them in a different way. Instead of the person that comes home and puts their bag down in the same way and sighs, it's like, oh, not that sigh again. And we get locked in a story about who the other person is. And one of the things I was saying to, I had, a, I taught a class this weekend in Portland, a Love Cycles class, and something that really got people's attention is I said, never, ever, ever think that you know the person, really know them. We are changing all the time in ourselves, and it's one of the most dangerous things that we can do is to think, boy, I know everything about this person. And then we see them in their office and they're with their clients building a, something or, um, or doing their work, and we think, I, no, this is a different person. It's a trap to think that we really know the person. We don't. And that can keep it exciting if we let ourselves keep discovering who they are. Agreed. What is the most important question to ask a person to whom you think you might want to commit yourself? There's, it, there's no question to ask them. There is not a, because everybody will answer the right, the right way. The most important thing to, to notice is how they treat other people, past lovers, their family. How do they talk about things that haven't gone well? Excuse me. You know, we all have times in relationships that have faltered, that have fallen apart. How do they talk about disappointments? Do they take responsibility for it? Do they say it's somebody else's fault? It's not a question. You know, how do they, how do they talk about their past partners? 
and how do they look at what has not worked in their life? Do they say, you know, I wasn't fair, or I was, you know, I was pretty entitled? You know, that's somebody that I would trust more than somebody who was able to describe everything that happened in their life that didn't go the way they wanted as somebody else's fault. So asking, it's not the question, it's the observation. If you're brave enough to really look at how they do life, how is their integrity outside of you? What are their skills for getting over things? Do they hold on? Because if you're going to be in a long-term relationship, you're going to have to get over a lot. You know, you, people hurt each other's feelings all the time, annoy each other. And, and that part of the, the skill of, of being in a long-term relationship is getting over it and being able to laugh and say, boy, we got lost in that one, didn't we? Let's go to dinner. And if they can't do it away from you, they're not gonna, they may be able to do everything perfect under the spell of love. But when that chemical wears off, because it doesn't last forever, three years with diminishing returns. So every time you fall in love, it lasts less and less time. If they can't do it without the spell of love, then you've had it. So not a question, but pay attention. Pay attention to who they are away from you. I love what you've just shared. You um, outlined six essential skills in love cycles, and I would love for you to chat a little bit about those skills and pique our listeners' interest so they run out and buy the book. Yay. Okay, I will. And the book just got sold into Korea, Latin America, and Turkey. I'm so thrilled it's going to be all those places. Um, Six essential skills. The first is to know you're part of the trouble. When we look out, what we see is the other person and what they're doing. We have to know where we're triggered, how we're contributing, how to really listen without barriers. That means listen, not so that I can figure out how to jump in and get my point made, but to listen with your point of view. Another skill is to nourish the relationship, even when you don't feel like it, like that cup of coffee. And the last one I'm going to say, because we're almost out of time, is keep your own tank filled. We've got two jobs in love. One is to care for ourselves and to keep our tank, our own tank filled. And the other is to pay attention to our partner and to keep the relationship tank filled. But they balance on each other. The more I have of me, the more I can bring to you. And the less of me that I have, the less I can bring to you. So those are four of them. You can get the book and find the other two. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is that is a great teaser, Linda. I wanted to just uh, tap in here for a second about intimacy, that we have one view of intimacy that is um, sort of the um, textbook view, that intimacy is all about being enmeshed and completely uh, open and vulnerable. But intimacy, as I understand it, how you're presenting it in Love Cycles, is also about the ability to be separate. Yes. That's right. We can be, because we have these two urges that we come with. One is for connection. One is for solitude. And there's always, there's always some attention between the two. And with couples, excuse me, there's also attention because one person may want connection, the other solitude. So we're working with these two instincts all the time. And intimacy has to do with coming to you with a full heart. When we fall in love, we feel like we've met our other half. And love's journey is really about the often painful and brave, <coughs> I'm so sorry, the brave discovery that we, we don't have another half, that we are it, that it all starts and ends with us. 
And the wholehearted love that I talk about that I get to as the final cycle is knowing that I'm whole. I'm whole already. I've got to make myself whole, but I'm whole, and you're whole, and the place where we come together, that is almost like a third person, a third being, the us, the I, thou, the the us. But you're already whole, and I'm already whole. So in order for that whole, it's not something that gets set. To keep that wholeness alive, I have to fill it from within. You can't fill it for me. And the more I fill it from within, the more I have to bring to our I thou, and the more you fill it with from within. And it's so seductive to want to hang out in that wonderful, juicy love juice and not do anything else, but it doesn't last. And it lasts even less if we become so clingy to each other, we stop having selves. And Linda, we are out of time. I want to thank you for sharing your heart, your love, your love cycles with us. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on this HHTR Flashback Favorite. This is Lisa cypress Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Stan Tatkin and Linda Carroll, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.